Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Piano, Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic, the <laughs> Hey Dad, can I have some quarters generation? <laughs> And it, it was, can I have quarters for video games first? But then it turned out to go to the cigarette machine. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, God, the cigarette machines, like the pull thing. <laughs> I never bought cigarettes from a cigarette machine, but I loved just yanking on those things. Sure you didn't, Farah. Sure you no, didn't. No, I wasn't. I, I didn't. And it um, started with, like, um, four quarters. But then by the time those machines got phased out, you'd have to put like an entire bucket of quarters into the little slots. And it was like doing a puzzle. Oh, right. It was like, a, <laughs> yes, like a buck 50 to play Paperboy or whatever. Yeah. Coin op- the thing I really miss are the, the coin operated jukeboxes. Like yeah. the last time I saw a jukebox in a bar, it was one of these like digital tap to pay. Things. I know. I with like, like flashing lights and nice. things. I'm like, what are you doing? Or you, now they, you operate them from your phone. No, the whole point is to like stare into the box and like swipe through right? the cards. It's not of fun if I have to log in to play Freebird four times in a row and everybody knows my name because <laughs> it flashes across the thing. <laughs> Did you ever do that? Yeah, at which point, why don't they just open up the Sano system and everybody can do whatever they want? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's taking all the fun out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's been a while since we uh, recorded anything. Oh, it really has. You've been busy. I've been I've been digging up my yard. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I have been digging up my yard, and then we've been just kind of really busy with a couple projects, um, and we're about to get busy again with more projects. But this time, I have more help, so I'm excited about that. Amen. Yeah, I'm also I've also been pretty busy with some oversized projects, and um, I think listeners should know. We, we produce the show sort of as our hobby on the side. <laughs> <laughs> we're both we're both committed to a lot of full time things, and uh, yeah. So we would love to produce this every day, but we don't we don't get to do that. Sometimes it's uh, a couple weeks in between. <laughs> yes, a couple weeks in between I, I, recording. It is the argument though for getting somebody else to be the editor producer because we have all this backlogged content, and if someone else would just crank through it that sucker right up we'd be on schedule the talking seems to be the easy part the uh construction of the actual output is (laughs) seems to be where we we stall totally yes i mean we're we're both clearly addicted now to any content related to generations in general and millennials in particular um and so that's no trouble like constantly coming up with material is like there's so much material and, um, or really like material's not the right word. It's more like there's so much territory. Yes. Uh, how do we gather the material? That's not terribly difficult. Um, but yeah, the, the making time to record is a little bit difficult. And then the editing is super hard to make time for. There's also no shortage of time. If I, you'll send an article and then somehow I'm like, 
45 minutes into researching all the sources <laughs> and I'm like pasting them into a document and I'm tracking them down and somehow I have time to do that. But then when it gets to editing, I'm like, eh, we'll get through it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It helps though, when you have people like the interview you're going to hear after we stop talking uh, for this episode, because <laughs> she is such a pro <laughs> that she's really easy to edit because there's nothing to edit. <laughs> she just speaks in complete uninterrupted sentences with well thought out thoughts and they all work in a clear order, which makes sense because she's an expert in narrative intelligence. And so, you know, um, one would hope that they, that someone like that would be good at that, but she's she, really good at that. So she definitely uh, practices what she preaches. Yes, indeed. And the, she we're talking about is, um, is Christina Blacken, who is uh, many things. She's the founder of a company called The New Quo, which is a leadership development and equity consultancy. She is the host of a podcast herself called Sway Them in Color. Mm -hmm. She's a public speaker who recently got up at the most recent TED, and she talks a little bit about that towards the end of our interview. Um, and all around, just very impressive person thinking about how narratives construct the world that we live in and how we interact with each other and the kinds of relationships that we build and how important that is for understanding dynamics of leadership and power. And we felt like that's a theme in all of these conversations we've been having about, particularly about like millennials moving into the workforce, millennials becoming adults, millennials hitting these milestones. Um, and then underneath all of that, the kind of um, assumptions about millennials as being so diverse that they are by definition more tolerant and so on and so forth. And then I think the other part of it was um, that made that kind of sweetened the, the, the whole thing of talking to her is she herself is a millennial. She's in her mid thirties and, mm -hmm. um, and she described herself as growing up as an extreme minority, a black non-Mormon woman in Utah. Ah. Um, and, uh, and so she has a kind of really unique perspective because she's been in that, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's a, I think it's, is it, is it W.E.B. Du Bois who talked about the, the kind of double sight thing that, that black people experience where they, they see themselves as they are and then they see the world, they see themselves as the world sees them. Mm -hmm. I think she has that kind of introspection and I don't know if extrospection is a thing. Yeah. Really the meta of the conversation, because I got to hear it as a third party. Mm. So she is an expert in that, in, in being able to talk about narrative at, at a um, weirdly narrator level of, of describing how narrative works and how narrative is formulated, how powerful it is. And then it, throughout the course of your conversation, which I loved, she's able to talk about She's, she's sharing what are anecdotes about her life as a way to say how she felt disconnected from the narrative and how it, how it revealed to her that the narrative, it can't be true because I don't, it's not true for me. Like, who is that apply to? And what I, what I wanted to ask you is how many million people in any given narrative the millennial narrative or a racial narrative or whatever, recognize that disparity or that place where they're like, you like avocado, avocado toast. And it's like, she, I think she says like, no, that's just like, yeah, we, that's what my mom yeah. made for snacks. Like that's it's just a snack. 
but that doesn't so, that yeah. doesn't define me. That's just a food that I sometimes eat. Like, well, I think I think it's interesting because there's you know this this time you'll hear the interview with um, with Christina, and next time you'll hear an interview with Bina Shaw, and I think there's kind of similar elements of that, um, of that mm -hmm. question that get addressed in both of those conversations. One part of it is there are elements of the narrative that you go, yeah, sure. Checks out. I agree with that. And then there are other elements of the narrative. You're like, what, <laughs> you know, why are you making that a thing in the case of like her avocado toast example? Um, and then other parts of it that are just like, you must be talking about somebody else, someplace else. Like you're clearly not talking about a black woman in Utah. Um, you're now obviously she's she's been in New York now for 13 years or something. But so there are these places where you kind of immediately go, that doesn't describe my experience. She also has a great example around the television show Girls and how like this was supposed to really speak to millennial women. And she's like, not this one. <laughs> I think there's those two versions of it where like, yes, I identify. No, I really don't. This seems to apply to somebody else. And then I think both Beanish and Christina talk about this other this third option which is you don't feel strongly about it one way or the other. And so you accept it as true and conform to the narrative as opposed to like, yes, that describes me. No, it doesn't describe me. It neither describes me nor doesn't, but I'll get in line. <laughs> and right. you know, I have no strong, you know, like I, avocado toast could be a perfect example of this, of like, I didn't grow up eating it. I don't think it's especially cool, but I'm told that we're all eating this now. So next time I go out for brunch, maybe I'll try some avocado toast. Give it a shot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I wonder, especially for groups that have been traditionally not centered, if hearing this is the way this group behaves is, and I, I don't think this, I don't think you talk about this directly in the conversation, but it's implied like, well, that idea of get in line, like, oh, I guess that's what we're doing. And if I want to be seen as more towards the center of this, the mainstream of this, than these things, you know, mm -hmm. it, that's really troubling to me that, that I mean, I guess yeah. that's what the American marketing machine is, is buy this makeup, wear these clothes, drive this car, get in this, get in this center lane here. This is where the, this is where all the things that you want to identify with are happening. Yeah. And, and I think that's another part of the conversation. It happens kind of in the last third of the, of the interview, but we talk about very explicitly and she, she really identifies this, that these generational based segmentations are useful to marketers. And Beanish talks about this as well, because it kind of flattens identities. I don't have to deal with all the subtleties. I can just mm -hmm. lump you all together and you are this way. And if I can get there early enough, if I can get there before you're an adult and tell you that this is who you are and what you like, tell your parents that this is who you are and what you like, then I have a better chance of locking you in and making you be what I want you to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one part of this whole thing that, you know, we've, we've nibbled at the edges of that through a lot of our conversations, but I think it is deliberate and overt <laughs> and, um, you know, all of the people who hung out a shingle as millennial experts, not oh. just our guys who wrote millennials rising, but everybody who came along, particularly like in our world and in marketing and advertising who are like, we're the first ones with a proprietary segmentation of millennials and here's what they care about. Or here's the green millennials segmentation. Here's the philanthropic millennials segmentation, whatever, millennial parents, millennial this, and they just keep bombarding you to keep hurting and corralling these millennials into predictable consumer behavior. The yes. flip side of it that I think is really interesting that I think we still have more to do on is the way that the marketing side 
interacts with the media side and Christina having worked in kind of both sides of media talks a bit about like how it's not really journalism anymore. It's content. She's hitting, she's hitting on something that I've passively thought, but I haven't been able to crystallize in the same way she's able to put it together. But you don't need like the ad team coming into the newsroom and like browbeating you about how you need more millennials be like content in order to just look down, you know, look across the street at what Buzzfeed is doing with listicles about, you know, things only millennials would understand and know that you should probably get on that train too. Like right. that, that you should, you should be part of this mechanism of enforcement. <laughs> um, which just sucks. It does suck. And I, part of the, as we're, <laughs> as we continue to have these conversations and now that we've, we've, you mostly have done this great job of bringing in these expert voices that are bringing in new perspectives to it. I, to me, the camera starts to turn from millennials to Howe and Strauss to who's creating the narrative, which, you know, that's where we're in that sweet spot now. But it's like, who is this narrative for? Like, there seems to be an engine that this sounds like conspiracy theory, Adam, but it, it isn't. Um, there seems to be this engine that's, oh, let's turn this narrative out. And I'm not sure it's that thoughtful because as a species, we, we don't have that kind of planning capability. Um, not usually, no. But w who's it for? Who, w there's some intention to, to tell the story. Who, who's the audience for the story? You know, it's, it's consumers, ultimately, voters, taxpayers. I, I mean, I... It's a really good question. I think if, if I were to answer that question right now, my feeling is um, it, it's for the it's for investors. It's for the people who greenlight campaigns and Are greenlight content. talking about content. stakeholder value? Is that what you're talking about right now? I am. I'm, I'm <laughs> always. Be, because Sarah's I think the single most important. always talking about stakeholder value, yeah. Can't help myself. Look, I was told that that's the sole purpose of a corporation <laughs> is to maximize shareholder value. No so argument I'm here. Sticking, sticking to that. Um, but but I think there is something to it, right? Like the most important thing anyone ever needs to know about millennials is the number of them. Yes. Right. Like if you're a, if you're a marketer or a politician or a corporation thinking about what kind of products you need to develop and what kind of supply chain systems you need to build, the thing you need to know is how big is that audience. I am old enough to remember when Samsung told us that Facebook did not have enough users and they had a billion users. They had just crossed the billion user line, right. but Samsung sitting in Korea, looking at Tencent QQ and all of the, all of the Asian apps going a billion. Please. Right. <laughs> like, that's one of our larger cities. Like it's just, it's not, <laughs> and it blew my mind at the time of like, oh, you're right. So there's no point in being on Facebook because it doesn't have enough people on it. Um, when like 27 million people tuning in to watch a single episode of television used to be a lot of people like that right. used to be super valuable to a, to a brand. So I think that like the sheer mass thing is the, is the, is the sort of shiny keys that keep getting jangled at people with the money. And then they're like, Hey, whatever it takes to tell them a story that will make them part with their cash. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there is, I think the other thing though, that, and I just don't know, it'd be really interesting to talk to somebody who has more kind of historical context for this, but it really does feel like over the course of my career, and maybe it's just that I'm in those rooms more because I'm more senior, but over the course of my career, I feel like I have heard more and more from clients and from 
board members of my clients' publicly traded businesses or whatever about how they really want the consumer to just get in line and do the thing that they want them to do. And when especially my media clients, frankly, are blame the customer first, that is that is their first instinct. If our if the quality of our reporting has gone down because clickbait is more successful for us for generating ad dollars, we say, well, that's what the reader wants. Yeah. And it's like, ah, it could be the business model. Right. <laughs> like, um, and, and Christina says something great in there, which is like engagement is just engagement. It doesn't matter. Like people don't have to like the content. And what gets conflated is if I engaged with it, I liked it. Like people can have an unpleasant engagement and never want to have that engagement again. But because they engaged the feedback loop to media is it worked. Do it again. Yes. Or the time scale is never considered. So the, the 24 yeah. hours of publishing is the engagement was high. So more of that is good. Mm -hmm. But like the yeah. time scale of like, well, the Republic is kind of faltering. Like <laughs> there's, there's yes. got to be some consideration <laughs> from yes. somebody that says hey, the, the long, the, the knock on effects of this are yes. negative and as she she gets to the heart of that in in your conversations yeah. i don't want to stall it anymore i want people to be able to hear this conversation yes anyway um let, let's uh let's kick it over to our conversation with christina excellent i'm christina blacken i run a company called the new quo which essentially teaches leaders how to use their narrative intelligence to build more equitable, innovative relationships. And narrative intelligence is understanding how cultural and societal stories influence behaviors and beliefs and bias. So it's a really interesting experience to help people to understand the thing that they use every single day in communication really shapes everything they're doing and how they're building their organizations, their goals, and their relationships. And how did you come to start the new quote? What inspired you to create your own your own business? So many things. I think the first starting point was growing up in Utah as an extreme minority. I mean, I was a minority racially, religiously, politically, and I saw firsthand how much people used stories of other groups to inform decision-making, policy decisions, business decisions, political decisions, and that was fascinating to me. I also fell in love with storytelling as a kid because it was the first time I was able to really see people like myself in the media or in books or in radio, and I couldn't really see that in my immediate environment. And then when I got into corporate America after college, I saw how quickly narrative and story was used as a tool for selling things that didn't really matter. So I saw the power of it as a behavior change tool, but I wanted to apply it in a way that felt more meaningful and to shift the cultural norms and beliefs specifically around leadership and power, because that's where I saw the most problems. I would get into leadership positions, but then people had very rigid ideas of what a leader should look like, how they should sound, how they should act. And because I didn't meet the conventional narrative and story of leadership, I was treated in a distinctly different way. And so I thought, wait a minute, this is something right here. Like We've got to change our ideas around these things if we're going to meet the really requirements of, of achieving innovation, which is so necessary right now. So it was interesting to build that on the side while working full time and then eventually going off on my own and running this organization full time. And so were you already interested in narrative and storytelling before you entered into kind of corporate work? Or was that something that you started to realize was a unmet need or a kind of gap in leadership? 
It was definitely before I went into corporate work. I think when I was younger, I was always a natural storyteller. I had, I'm dating myself now, but I had something called Girl Talk, which was this little cute handheld recorder that you could essentially record a tape and walk around and, you know, do your own thing. And so I used to make these radio shows and these funny news segments about space. And I just always loved being able to tell a story that essentially got people to feel something or learn something. And so that was a natural inclination when I was younger. And then when I got specifically into the nonprofit world, because I've worked in four different industries, one of them being the nonprofit space, that was the first time I used storytelling to change behavior around social issues. So I would build campaigns with my colleagues using email, text messaging, social media, and essentially get young people, hundreds of thousands of them to care about social issues like discrimination or women's health or civil rights. And it was fascinating to me. I'm like, wow, we're really getting people to adopt new ideas to change their beliefs, to do something positive solely through the stories that we're telling them and the way that we're framing ideas with narratives. So that to me was really fascinating. And then running into those issues in leadership and seeing the biases, the inequalities, the double standards that were perpetuated in a lot of toxic workplace cultures, I felt like this tool could be applied to solve some of those issues. And so I started to dig into the research on what does narrative do to the brain? And how does narrative affect bias adoption, belief adoption, idea adoption? And when I was uncovering the science, I'm like, this is so cool. We don't talk about this enough, even though I think 65, about 65% of all of our daily communication is story. So seeing that, I was like, oh, there's an opportunity here. It's a tool we're using all the time. We're just not applying it in this idea of culture change and behavior change inside of organizations. Most organizations are only applying it externally to get people to adopt something or buy something. So it really came from those areas, essentially. That's great. I mean, one of the reasons that um, I got excited to talk to you more about this, um, obviously, like, was was sort of casting around for people who are thinking about the things, you know, at the um, kind of on the what's the metaphor I want to use here? Kind of, we're talking about a very specific story um, that has been developed over the last 20 years. And we wanted to talk to people who had some expertise around different elements of all of this, um, both as kind of lived experience and also as as experts on on things like storytelling. So that was something I was like, well, you know, excited to be introduced to Christine and have a conversation. And then we had this great chat of, uh, gosh, like a month ago or something now. Um, Because I think what we're we're trying to grapple with is, you know, this. So I'm, you know, on that kind of borderline of Gen X and um, and millennials. Um, too old, definitely, to be a millennial. Too young to be a Gen Xer, depending on which demographer you ask. So I sit in that little Oregon Trail generation or whatever <laughs> sits there. Um, and so, I, you know, I was old enough to have like my first job in an ad agency when the book Millennials Rising came out. When we coined the ter- when that term became popularized. You know, people were trying to decide, were we going to call y'all Echo Boomers or Gen Y or Millennial or what, right? But I was kind of there at the beginning and was junior in my own career as a brand strategist and reading all of these like trend reports going, this all feels wrong and I can't quite put my finger on what's wrong about it and just kind of, you know, occasionally encounter it over and over and over again for the last 20 years. I'm curious about, from your perspective, what you understand the millennial narrative to be. Obviously, like Adam, my co-host, and I have a pretty clear sense of it, but I'm curious about like what you've received through the the years and through the ether about what the millennial narrative even is. Well, what's interesting is I just learned that I'm an elder millennial, according to oh, I'm sorry. updated. <laughs> 
information because I'm 35. I think the the average millennial is like mid 30s, but the oldest is 38. I remember when the term first came out and reading an article about avocado toast and how millennials have an obsession with avocado toast. And it was kind of this joke in this meme. I think probably even SNL has a skit making fun of millennials obsession with this toast. I remember thinking that was one of those kind of throwaway snacks my mom used to make as a kid that I thought was so weird. She would make avocado toast. It's not a necessity because like we had some toast. There's a lot of avocado you smash it up, put it on bread. So it was interesting to see that it had been flipped into this sort of artisanal dish. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I've been eating avocado toast and so has my mom since like the 90s. But it's interesting that because a certain affluent city going millennial decided that avocado toast is the, is the thing and is now this overpriced whatever on a restaurant menu. And I remember thinking that's not really the full or accurate story about what millennials are experiencing. And that kind of continued from there, this idea of, you know, millennials are flighty and they don't care about tradition and they're ruining our current economic structures and they don't want to settle down in any kind of way. It just, there were things happening culturally, socially, politically uh, to our community and to this particular generation that I don't think was being accounted for in a lot of those broad sweeping narratives And I think it's a sort of cycle that we see with people who get to talk about these demographics and paint the strokes about these demographics, Uh, the sort of fear mongering that happens when a new generation that is questioning norms that are not working starts to do that. And so I thought that was interesting that it was happening with millennials, especially because at one point millennials were sort of this like heralded look how positive and socially conscious and environmentally friendly and forward thinking they are compared to previous generations and that same behavior was used and weaponized against this generation when it started to challenge older generations seats of power so it's been really interesting to see the conflicting narratives and the holes in the story about who millennials are what they care about and why they're doing what they're doing it, it it is really interesting because I think I, I shared with you that that quote from um I've, I've been working my way through uh, a book by Reniqua Allen called It's All a Dream, which is fantastic and seems to be the only book written about the Black millennial experience, um, <laughs> which is amazing because there are so many books about millennials and very few books about millennials that aren't white, suburban or urban, affluent, highly educated. And and she talks about that kind of imagined Brooklyn hipster drinking pricey coffee in um, you know, fancy cafes or something. <laughs> and um and I think maybe also because I I'm also a, a West Coaster originally, originally from Oregon, those narratives all felt very people who went to um you know, I don't know, small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast and people who lived in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, um, not, um, hang on one second. Haskell, what are you trying to do? You want to try to get on the bed. You can't get on the bed because there's stuff on the bed. It's my dog. (laughs) Um, Puppy. No, go lay down. Just go lay down over there. You can't get up there, puppy. There's no room. He's sad. Um, All right. (laughs) We'll come back in. Um, all right. He's I'm just making sure he doesn't topple everything he climbs under to get where he wants to go. <laughs> and then, okay. Can you make yourself at ease? <laughs> Usually he's downstairs with my husband, but my husband went to run some errands. Um, all right. Good boy. Stay there. Um, <laughs> so 
you know, that that picture always felt like a very Northeastern picture to me, to be honest. Um, I'm curious for you, growing up, as you said, sort of a multiple minority in, in Utah and in, in the American West, but as a Black woman, as someone who's not, I assume, not Mormon, um, what? how did you receive those stories? Did they feel like they were pretty clearly missing people who looked like you, or did you feel like any parts of it did speak to you, resonated with your own experience? That's a great question. I think the stories around sort of the psychographics I resonated with in terms of being more socially conscious and concerned about the future of society and about the world. And I think most millennials were confronted with that because we were pretty young when 9-11 happened. I was in middle school and I remember getting there the morning that it happened. And a friend of mine had called me on a landline phone again dating myself and she was like did you see that there was a plane crash into some towers in New York City and I was like what it was just so strange to get a call like that from my friend and I thought she was pranking me I'm like why is she calling me at eight in the morning before school about this plane crash it's so odd so I get to school and everybody's standing around looking at a television that's mounted on the wall in the main office and I just I had gotten to school a little late because sometimes I was getting to school late because I was tired and I remember getting into the office and was just staring at the screen having no idea what was happening and I got there right in time to see the first tower fall and I had no idea what I was looking at I didn't know what the World Trade Center was I was in eighth grade at the time and I just remember feeling like oh this is a really big deal like there's something about this is distinctly different than anything that's happened before and the adults mm-hmm. around us are terrified. And because Utah has a lot of military bases, there was this palpable fear that this was an attack across the country because we didn't know where it was targeted. So we were being told all these things to prepare ourselves or they're going to attack the military and Air Force bases in my hometown. We had no idea. And I remember the TVs were on all day and we told the teachers, we don't want you to turn it off because we want to know what's going on, even though they wanted to turn it off and disconnect us from that. So seeing this yeah. sort of huge, massive event at such a young age was so shaping for a lot of millennials. They were thinking about mm-hmm. what's changing in the world, the way that wars happen, the way that people fight against different countries and different powers. This is changing. This has not happened before in this kind of way against civilians in this particular structure or approach. And so I think that shaped a lot of people's perspectives of having a more global lens, having a more conscious lens of power dynamics and history and not just going along to go along with sort of these historical myths about, you know, this American manifest destiny and a sort of having this altruistic, we're championing democracy around the world. We know that wasn't really the real story. That wasn't the full story of what was happening. So I think a lot of millennials, the psychographics of critiquing and questioning the power structures around us and how it's led to so much violence and destruction. I think that was really relevant. And if you ask a lot of millennials and ask them compared to other generations, I think there is a more accurate, at least a little bit more accurate of an understanding of what's happening in the world and a bit more, I want something to change and be better for it kind of understanding. But beyond that, Mm -hmm. some of the cultural or pop culture stuff that people would say millennials loved, I didn't really relate to or resonate with as much because it came from a very white lens. It came from a very Mm -hmm. specific lens. I live on the East Coast and have lived on the East Coast for the last 13 years. And so I definitely have a lot of New York City tendencies. I live in Brooklyn. I love a latte, right? I do eat avocado (laughs) toast. And I've been eating avocado (laughs) toast since I was, you know, in middle school. But 
besides Mm -hmm. that there were times when I was like that's not the kind of music I like or that sort of meme and funny thing about that tv show that doesn't resonate with me I remember the tv show girls was huge at one point which was on HBO and it it did not resonate with me at all I actually disliked the show incredibly so at the time when it wasn't popular (laughs) to dislike that show and I remember people were like this is a millennials is talking to the average millennial woman I'm like not to me that's not my experience or anything so Mm -hmm. I think when it came to sort of making this homogenous understanding of our pop culture and the ways that we might express ourselves and the things that we might like, that didn't really resonate. But the huge political, economic and social, cultural things that were happening to us all, I think were shaping events. How we responded to those events might be a little different, but it did shape a a certain sort of sensibility and psychographic for a lot of millennials that I think still resonates today. I think that's, I I definitely want to come back to these kind of milestone moments because I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you. So the, the similar experience, like it was my dad that called me. I was in LA, I was living in LA at the time and he called me on his way to work because he went into work really early um, and was like, I just heard on the radio of some sort of plane crashed into the trade center thing. And I had a similar experience of, I turned on the TV in time, you know, a few minutes before the first tower collapsed. Um, And I had friends who worked in lower Manhattan and spent, you know, most of the day trying to reach them. And, you know, that kind of experience was pretty you know, it, it seemed like it should be this wildly unifying event. And I definitely want to talk about what happens when we all kind of experience the same thing, but don't experience the same thing somehow. Um, but I want to go back to something you mentioned before, which is that the kind of current story is this very like, they're tearing down institutions, they're a drag, they're flighty, they're quiet quitting, they're, you know, whatever it is they're doing that we don't like, we're we're doing that. And that I think, you know, I completely share your perspective that this is rooted in some sort of fear. But maybe, you know, we have had these, you use the kind of um, construct of these sort of moments of change that can create opportunities for, for creating new narratives. And I think there's this 2000s narrative that emerges where we're all very optimistic. You kids are the best. And like, you're going to be the next greatest generation and all of that. Then somewhere around 2010, there's this, I keep using the um, professional wrestling language of a heel turn. <laughs> like there's this sort of moment where we oh, stop thinking they're, <laughs> they're great to, wow, they're a real pain in the ass. And some of that I think has to do with, you know, almost all of you are now adults. Almost all of you are now in the workforce. Um, some of you are struggling after the 2008 financial crisis and saying so. Um, but what what do you think were kind of the contributing factors around um, these both the kind of constructions of these narratives and the shifts and and I think fear is a piece of that but but what's your perspective on that where do you think these stories kind of came from I think they really start with that 2008 financial downturn that you mentioned where a lot of millennials were in, entering the workforce for the first time in some of the worst economic conditions in decades and so the sort of promise that millennials were given that was given to previous generations of go to college, take on as much debt as you need to, to finish your education, you're going to get some sort of job that makes that debt acclimation worth it. And essentially that was sort of a myth and a lie for a lot of millennials. They, I know a lot of people who went into six figures of of schooling debt. And of course the criticism from a lot of groups is like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You should get scholarships and you should have done this and that. Well, 
the advice that was given to a lot of individuals was that debt is okay because you're going to make so much more exponentially in return for having a college education. And that might've been true decades before, maybe because wages were pacing in a different way than they were once we got to 2008. But it was really shocking that a lot of college students who didn't understand the financial system at all, who didn't understand that saddling themselves with multiple figures of debt could be life altering and essentially alter every other decision they make after that. It was pretty shocking to a lot of millennials. I was lucky that my schooling and education, I was able to get halfway through my college education, a lot of grants and support. And then I came out of college with minimum amounts of debt, but a lot of my peers did not have that experience. And so they ended up having to choose very differently than previous generations. They had to stay in their parents' homes a lot longer than planned. They had to delay potentially if they want kids or even desire them, if they're going to have them at all. They had to essentially think about weddings, which are not free if you're going to do it traditionally. Yeah, you could go to the courthouse. Most people, that's not what they desire emotionally if they decide or want marriage. And so a lot of people were delaying getting married much later than other generations. And so people were like, you're putting off all these traditional conventional milestones of adulthood that we've literally shoved down your throats through the romantic industrial complex. Shout out to Francesca Hoagie for that term and every other media outlet where we've tried to essentially say this very linear set path of path of achievement is the only thing that you should be thinking about. And Melinos came out of college and was like, I'm just trying to survive and make sure I pay my bills and stay afloat while y'all have given us stagnant wages that haven't raised in any kind of significant way to pace with the cost of living, crazy amounts of debt because the inflation attached to schooling and schooling fees has exponentially increased in the last, say, four decades. And we're still supposed to do all these very expensive milestones to prove to you that we're adults and that we care about the society. That's insane. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of the economic, social, and political changes happening behind the scenes were not recognized, just that people weren't making certain choices. And what mm-hmm. certain economics and polit- politicians and other people in positions of power who were afraid of things shifting were saying was, oh, you're doing this because you're selfish. You're doing this because you don't care about stability of society. You're doing this because you're trying to be different. When really there were so many other factors. Now, is there a change in attitude culturally about the conventional goals and if we should care about them? Absolutely. I think a well-lived life is not just defined by these external milestones. We've seen that. We've also seen another side of this psychographically. A lot of millennials have seen older generations and how unhappy they have been by chasing certain linear milestones and doing all the things society said to do and still being deeply disconnected from themselves, their purpose and happiness because they focused so much on external acclimation of material things or traditional milestones that didn't matter or align with their values. So a lot of millennials are like, I've seen my parents and great grandparents or grandparents and how miserable they've been as they've chased this linear conventional path of success that has been advertised from different positions of power and institutions. And that don't seem great either. So whether I have the money and finances (laughs) to do it or not, it doesn't seem like a great path. And I think a lot of people who were older, who had also bought into those myths of success, were upset because when you see other generations divest from that, you're like, wait a minute, I want to prove that this was worth it. If I had to suffer and do all these things I didn't really want to do because I felt like I had to, I think you should do that too, because it's not fair. So there was definitely some of that as well, where it's like, I had to do these things and I didn't want to have to buy a house and settle down and whatever, you know, the myth making is. (laughs) And I think that's really interesting, the sort of angry 
I had to pay my dues. I had to work a job I didn't like. I had to spend money I didn't want to. You should as well. And a lot of millennials are now saying, I want to make a choice. If I have all of these really serious, significant constrictions that have been created, by the way, by previous generations and their poor choices, we can unpack that as Mm -hmm. well. Like, why do we have certain economic, environmental, and political issues? It was because of previous historical choices that current generations didn't have control over, but need to respond and react to. So millennials are like, if I have to be in that position, I want to have as much choice as possible. That means I have to create my own definition of success and my own path and find creative Mm -hmm. ways to figure it out with the limited resources and tools that we're being given. Right. This feels a little bit like, um, And I'll, I'll I'll just go ahead and say it. We'll decide later whether I'm going to bleep myself on this. But it feels a little bit like fucking around and finding out. Like there's a whole bunch of conflicting <laughs> right. stories here, right? Like there's, you know, next greatest generation. They should have all this autonomy. They get to decide what to wear. We invent the concept of tweens so that we can have more empowerment at younger ages. And yet also helicopter parenting and um, achievement, you know, the achievement wheel for for kids. And then there's also, I think, a belief in the 90s, that it's all up and to the right, and that like the economy is going to be great. This is going to be, you know, as a as a exennial, as a latter day Gen X or whatever. Um, the story to us was: you are going to be worse off than your parents. There will be no such thing as social security when you get to retirement age. And by the way, you deserve it because you suck. And it was, you know, it was the slacker narrative, right? Like we all were just like we had checked out. We were just, you know, and a lot of that comes out of, to your point, previous generations' decisions and structural and economic things like divorce, um, the, you know, drug crisis of the 80s and early 90s, and then um, and then also the AIDS crisis. There, there were all of those kinds of things that just felt like lost generation, forget about them. And literally, this becomes a policy decision. I've talked about this before, but in ni- like the, the extension of child welfare um, happened in like 1984. And they started the benefits for people who were born in 1982. If you were born before 1982, they were like, don't care, like lost generation, screw them. And so born after 82, well, we're going to invest in you and we're going to do Head Start programs and we're going to do these things. Not that we did them well, but like pretended to invest in the youth of America. Um, And it's so interesting because the different story that gets sold there is um, you guys are going to be the leaders. You're going to save us. You're going to fix everything. You're going to invent all the solutions. Um, But also collective amnesia about how terrible those milestones were for previous generations and nevertheless an expectation that if I had to go through it, you have to go through it. And it's like those things don't actually all go together. You you like logically, if you start to kind of unpack them, they can't all hang in one story. And yet somehow they mash them into a narrative that we're all still sticking to. <laughs> and and it's just I mean, it's just wild to me. My 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 parents talk about trying to get a mortgage in the early 80s when mortgage rates were in the double digits. And like, and then boomers kind of conveniently forget how hard it was to get a house at certain points in time. And, um, you know, if they got lucky and bought a house when wages were up and housing prices were still relatively low, which would have been like, I don't know, 1993 or something like that, then good for them. <laughs> but after that, it just went crazy. Um, I think these these kind of this is one of the things that I'm I'm curious about your perspective on as an expert in this kind of in, in narrative intelligence is I feel like there's been more myth making than narrative construction. 
Like the myths don't have to be internally consistent. It doesn't have to make sense that Athena pops out of Zeus's head, right? Like you don't have yeah. to you don't have to understand how that works. <laughs> you just sort of take it on face value. And I feel like that's a lot of what we've done with the story about millennials in particular as a generation. I see it coming with with Gen Z already. Um, a new set of you know, warmed over millennial myths in some respects. Um, but what should we, as we keep kind of trying to pull apart, where did these stories come from? Who do they benefit? Why are they there? Wh what are some things we should be kind of on the lookout for in figuring out which parts are truly kind of narratives and which are like convenient myths? That's a really great question. And I think to to back up a little bit to get people to understand what narrative intelligence is. So it's a term that was coined, I think, in the 1950s and 60s by computational researchers because they wanted to get algorithms and machines to operate like human brains because humans organize information in narrative structure so that it has easier recall, so you can make quick decisions. We're unique as a species that we get to use narrative as a tool for making decisions and organizing information. And beyond that, I think it's a very new term. I talk about it all the time because I think beliefs and ideas first start with narrative. We understand that in therapeutic settings, most of the time of therapeutic approaches, unpacking different narratives and stories and shifting cognitive distortions and thinking in ways that can be positive and change behavior going forward or solve and heal for different issues. So a lot of the ways that we use narrative is societally is for a specific sort of idea adoption. If we get people to adopt specific beliefs, we can essentially get them to act in particular ways. And so a lot of myth-making starts with marketing and media because we have a commercialized capitalist system that sells you things and to survive and to keep it going, they need to continuously sell stuff. To be able to sell stuff efficiently, they have to put people into neat organized categories of people and information and psychographics. And so there is a financial incentive to be the person who can own and talk about an entire group of people that you could then peddle stuff to. That's, I would say, the simplest definition of why we see people talking about generations in the ways that we do, not in nuanced ways, not in complex ways, but in these caricatures that are sort of these large, broad strokes because they're easier to essentially categorize and sell to. And I think that starts really young because if you think about the marketing system that we have, we start marketing as soon as a kid can walk, right? So we're trying to get them to adopt certain toys or to get them to bug their parents about certain experiences. And so we also get to convince people of their own identity because a lot of your identity is built on the stories that you pick up from your family, from your childhood experiences, from the TV, the media, the podcast, the books, the radio you might consume, the mm -hmm. educational stories that you pick up historical narratives, all that shapes your identity and perspective in a lot of ways. So we get to also tell generations who they are, which then can shape their behaviors going forward for better or for worse. So I think there is a huge economic incentive because of the commercial and marketing structures that we've created to broad stroke and categorize and label people and label them in ways that is reductive. I mean, if you think about back, let's go back in history, our economic system was built on labeling and have, haves and have nots. That started with so many different things, including slavery, where there was a group of people that were labeled and categorized and their free labor was used to extract resources and essentially wealth at their detriment. So if we think about our historical structure of economics and how it's evolved globally, it makes a lot of sense that we would continue this sort of labeling and categorization 
extracting value from individuals and, and groups. And myth making is a big part of that because you can't tell a really cute, short, broad stroke story without there being some myths in it. It's really hard to tell an accurate and constructive story that's solely just about selling things and solely just about getting you to adopt stuff you may not need. It takes a myth to do that. So if you tell millennials or you tell people who have children as millennials that they like X, Y, and Z things and that's it, it makes it so much easier to get them to adopt certain things or buy certain stuff. And so I think about this a lot. Like if you look at the, even the authors of the books, the studies, the research, most of them are men, most of them are white, most of them have had some massive economic return in being the first to talk about these generations. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying all of them aren't trying to just understand human interactions and behaviors and help us to understand ourselves and our society better. I know that there are individuals who have done that work, who want to talk about generations in a way that's about shaping history and having an accurate picture of who we are and what we're doing. But there is a massive amount of individuals who are mostly doing this for economic gain and to essentially contribute to marketing structures. Like I used to work in the marketing world, so I'm very familiar and close with it. And I remember so many of our early conversations about millennials was who could be the first to really understand them and to really get into their psyche and get them to do stuff, right? Like it was so many research organizations that were like, we're the first, we have the first proprietary sets of data that's going to unlock <laughs> the marketing power, the muscle to get millennials to buy shit. It's like, okay, that was the main conversation happening. It wasn't like, how do we get millennials to understand how they can do things differently than other generations and improve society? There was a tiny conversation of that, but a lot of it was really marketing stuff. How do we get them to buy commercial things? Because they're a huge generation. They're one of the biggest in terms of size. They're going to have lots of economic power. How do we get into that early? So I think that's something people need mm -hmm. to question is, what is the motivation for certain narratives? Because the motivation then will reveal the themes and the values and the stereotypes and the tropes that are shaped in those narratives and that are shaped in those myths mm -hmm. because that'll reveal essentially what the goal is, what the outcome is. And I think a lot of people weren't really questioning that. And they are now because we have so much more backlash around the ways that we target people and sell them stuff because of living in a very digitized world now where you can track literally everything. Mm -hmm. So there's more criticism of when we advertise things to people and how it's being done. But I think that's something that people need to reflect on. Whereas who are the narrative makers and what are their incentives and what are they motivated by? Because when you unpack that yeah. you, and you trace the money, you almost always get a very clear answer. That's a really good point. I think we that's something we definitely need to look at more. I, one of the things that's clear when you look at um, this kind of we keep jokingly referring to it as the urtext of the millennial myth as book millennials rising is these guys have written multiple books. I have a stack of them behind me of, um, of books about generations, including a book literally just called generations, but um, they seem to be writing all of their books actually about boomers and they are all hidden polemics against boomers. Um, the authors themselves are boomers, so I don't know what's going on exactly there. Um, I, I would say that they lean conservative for sure as as people. Um, and one of the big things that you see in the Millennials Rising book in particular, though it's also in their book about Gen X, um, which they called 13th Generation, which 
um, didn't really roll off the tongue, um, and also was extremely American. It was 13 generations from the founding. <laughs> Not wow. okay. So like doesn't apply anywhere else, right? <laughs> right. Um, but that that um one of the things that emerges throughout their book is a real anxiety about how boomers were this generation that lived on the cusp of reproductive freedom, more or less. Um, first generation to have contraceptives legalized even in marriage, right? The Griswolds not decided until the early 60s. Um, and then and then Roe v. Wade. So you have a generation who some of them start having kids when every previous generation started having kids. Some of them delay. Some of them have kids at the beginning and then don't have kids again for 10 years. Um, and they are making decisions, actually making choices about whether or not they want to have children. And this is clearly the cause of some deep anxiety in these authors because they keep kind of talking about Gen X as essentially an unwanted generation and millennials as a wanted generation, which is just like kind of diabolical. Um, but at the same time, they're cynical about the millennia, uh, about the parents of millennials, the boomer parents of millennials, as like, tr you know, people who just want trophies. And that the babies are the trophies and that they've got their baby on board signs in their cars. And like, they constantly talk about the baby on board thing. It's a little, it's a little weird. Um, <laughs> excuse me. But clearly, they've got that anxiety. I think you raise a really good point that you know, Adam and I just have started thinking about and not enough, and you are making it clear we have to think about it more, is that intersection between the people who are just trying to like study these generations for whatever reason and the marketers who hoover all that data up. Because I too have worked in market research and in advertising for 20 years, and we're always getting those trend reports and trying to sell us on proprietary segmentations of this group or that group. And you know, there's always an agenda. There's always a desire to sell something up to and including, you know, working with brands who, you know, do some sort of give get model where they want to be seen as doing good. And maybe they actually genuinely want to do good. And they really want you to believe that millennials are more likely to engage in charitable giving. They're more likely to buy mission driven products and so on and so forth. And it's like, that's true on the margins. And, but it's not like all millennials do this, right? And I think this, this is the thing, though, that um, I want to finally circle the drain and get to, which is, I think there's also a conversation happening between journalism, that far, that part of the media, and then the brand side of things, the, the consumer side, the, the commercial side of things. And it's hard for me to really understand what that conversation is, because I don't want to be totally cynical and say like, hey, whatever the advertisers want is what we report. But there are some times where it feels like you guys are just happily peddling these consumer myths. And there's got to be a good reason for it. It can't just be because you're lazy. <laughs> like it's gotta, there's got to be something else going on there. Do you have a guess about what that kind of conversation is that's happening between the commercial side and journalism? Because they're Absolutely. both sort of spreading and consuming these myths. One quick thing. My neighbor just started playing music. Can you hear it? I hope not. There's like a bass. I can't hear it. Okay, good. I can't hear it. <laughs> so I think it's because the gap between journalism and commercialism has started to close a bit over time. And I was a participant in that, I'll have to admit. When I was in the media world, I did branded content, um, which is a process of creating editorial 
content with a commercial goal, uh, typically sponsored by an organization, a corporation. And so there is some incentive to essentially appeal to specific demographics because of that branded content. Now, branded content isn't a villain. It's not the worst thing. You know, essentially media is sponsored always by some entity. And I think that plays a role where we're essentially seeing a conflation between journalism and content that's sponsored and promoted by corporations. I think that's why it's really important that we question the economic structures we've built around media organizations. Most media organizations are operating from a pretty weak place at this point. They're either owned by a very wealthy singular individual, and you would be shocked. You could Google it, look it up. A significant amount of media organizations are owned by like a one person, which is kind of terrifying, <laughs> essentially. And the other side of it is also if there isn't freedom of the press, then there are very few structures left to critique traditional formal positions of power. So there is sort of this small independent media organizations that are fighting based on public benefits, donations, reader memberships that can essentially kind of take themselves out of the trenches of the marketing media cesspool that keeps most media organizations afloat but that then that means that their reach is smaller their voices are smaller so not to paint this dystopian picture but I think people need to understand that because of the way that we've set up these capitalistic structures there is an incentive to do everything based on a profit first model and so you see that also in journalism there is a profit-based model, not just because of advertisers or branded content, but also because clicks get attention, which I guess then ties back to advertising because the more attention that you get, the more dollars you could potentially get. So doing really histrionic, doomsday, um, sort of hot takes on things where you get polarized opinions and strong reactions on social media will get you more engagement. And so there are a lot of organizations, not all of them, but a lot of media organizations that have an incentive to take particular myths or narratives and run with it because it gets attention, because it gets people riled up or gets people fighting online. Like there's a lot of research that's coming out that a significant portion of our media is highly negative. And some of that is because humans have a negativity bias based on evolution and past experiences and wanting to you know, minimize threats and deal with the uncertainty of life. There's that. There's also because the social media algorithms that have been designed have an incentive and a, and a bent towards bubbling up really negative information because people react so strongly to it. Not because they like it, not because they enjoy it, but they react to it. And that reaction, that engagement and the dollar matters more than health and well-being and stability in a lot of these organizations. So I think that's a big part of it. Like, how do we one, get the public to understand how important a free press that is essentially supported in, an, in a distinct and separate way that doesn't conflate its incentives and can give people information that is as unbiased as possible and why that's a benefit to everybody. I think getting people to really understand that and to want our tax dollars to contribute to that because that's one way we could potentially have a better sort of more balanced media structure. That's a big, important one. And the other thing is how social media plays into it because now a majority of people consume their news through social media, myself included. 
And so that's changed the media landscape as well and, and how people approach journalism, how they approach creating information. The other part of it too is now the the barrier to becoming a journalist has been lowered and democratized in a lot of really, really great ways, but also some problematic ways where anyone with a voice and a platform, no matter how misinformed or hateful that platform might be, can gain a following and essentially become a sort of on the street style journalist without some of the credentials or experiences or protocols that you might want to make sure journalists have to have really rigorously reported and accurate depictions of what's happening in the world. So there's a number of things happening there. And I think the public becoming more media literate and being able to be more discerning is really important, especially now that we're moving into this AI field and having these sort of new tools that can essentially bubble up information within a second people need to become more discerning and in ways that aren't conspiracy theory, tin hat, you know, foil things. Cause that's not <laughs> useful. People were like, yeah, you know, there's a pizza chain that pedophile. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is not basically <laughs> real reality. The world is flat. Come on y'all. That's what you want to do with your time. But there are other ways <laughs> we can be critical of the media structures around us without it delving into wild conspiracy theories. And I think Media literacy and getting people to improve their narrative intelligence, which is becoming, one, having a more diverse set of stories that they consume. A majority of people mm -hmm. consume very limited stories that are confirmation bias confirming. So they only see people like themselves. They only listen to people like themselves. And so their narrative intelligence is really limited because they don't have a diverse set of narratives they're pulling from. And also inaccurate depiction of, depictions of history. So their narratives are full of stereotypes and tropes instead of more complex, nuanced depictions of the world. And I think if more people at a higher level of narrative intelligence, they would look at their media differently and they would mm -hmm. question some of these generational narratives more strongly. So that that also um, calls me back to something you said a little bit a little bit ago in our conversation about kind of telling generations what they're like and, you know, and telling the parents of those generations what what they like. And so therefore you should buy the pink Legos for the girls and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there are some interesting parts of the millennial narrative that feel like that to me, where, you know, there there are these kind of, um, in, in Renika Allen's book, she kind of teases apart some of the stuff about, okay, most diverse, most tolerant generation, and then you pull white millennials, and it turns out they're not that much more tolerant than their parents. They don't have particularly more progressive ideas about Black people than their parents did. Um, and I, I know that you just um, spoke at TED about the fairly toxic myth of colorblindness. Um, and I, I don't know if that was how it was phrased in the in the talk that you were responding to, but but I, I wonder about that. That there's kind of a get if you get a free pass, you don't have to worry about your um, your actual your actual instincts and um, biases because um, you watch Issa Rae's show and um, <laughs> you live in um, whatever you you live in Bed Stuy, so you're you're cool. Um, you, you know, you don't have to worry about whatever your actual kind of latent biases are. I wonder about that kind of giving people a pass by just sort of proclaiming you are diverse and tolerant and therefore um, the, the myth winds up doing two things. One is it gives everybody a pass and says you are diverse and tolerant, but then never actually talks about the black and brown millennials, <laughs> like really just focuses on the white experience. And I just wondered if you want to talk about the what you said at, at, at TED and, and some of the, the 
the problems with those kinds of telling people what they're like and giving people a pass on some things that maybe they need to um, not just be on kind of autopilot about and actually kind of interrogate within themselves. I love this question because actually on my podcast, which is called Sway Them in Color, I have an episode called Being Liberal Doesn't Give You a Depression Pass, which literally hits on a lot of this because I think people understand progress as having certain values, but they don't necessarily understand that progress is really putting your values into action and into practice. And that's a lot of what my work is about is how do we take these values around diversity, equity, and inclusion and actually put them into our behaviors, our practices, our policies, our goals. And so a lot of the myth-making that happens around generations is just even desiring this positive, equitable thing is enough. Having the value is enough. It feels good. It feels like you have a lens and a worldview that is more evolved than previous generations. And it's a start because values need to be there first so we can then have the behaviors. But if you only just adhere to the values, but don't analyze how your behaviors may be counter to those values, then we're kind of lost to begin with. And I think there's a significant portion of individuals who believe that social change is about this sort of performative appearance, appearing equitable, appearing altruistic, because public opinion matters more than the quality of what they're doing in their relationships, the quality of what they're teaching to their children or their students or their parishioners. If you're in a position of influence of any sort with a community, Um, if you believe in philanthropy of not really caring how you create your income or your wealth and what harms that may cause when you do it. But as long as you give a little kickback to groups that have been harmed, you're good to go. Like, I think a lot of that's part of the problem is we've had this sort of greenwashing of progress And I think that's trickled down to millennials, essentially, in certain ways, because, yes, there is more social consciousness, but the activity and the practices sometimes is lagging, especially for probably the average white American, because we still have what I call historical amnesia. And that's a lot of people do not have an accurate depiction of history or the social issues that have been created by history and why they exist today. And so my talk that I did at TED was sort of pointing to that because TED in this last year essentially had um, a conference around possibility and every single day is a different theme of talks. And one of the days was really about social issues. And so they allowed somebody who's connected to a conservative think tank, but I'm not going to name drop him because I don't want him to get any more attention. He essentially was a black man, gets on stage and is sort of taking the concept of colorblindness, which is not seeing color, quote unquote, not seeing race. Not for people who are actually colorblind, who can't see blue and red, like it's not those people. It's (laughs) this antiquated ableist term about individuals who do not see the color of people's skin. And that's why we're going to be able to solve racism. What I thought was really interesting, though, is colorblindness as a concept was first introduced in 1896. And it was introduced in a court case, essentially, as here's the way that we can address racism one of the problems with it as a practice was that it essentially denies and deflects and erases the current harms that were caused by racial policy so there's nothing wrong with wanting to treat people in positive ways regardless of what they look like but denying that there's differences and pretending that differences don't happen actually creates more harm and so the talk that i gave at ted was essentially in challenge to this because they did a town hall where you could pitch a one to two minute talk in response to one of the talks you saw that week, either expanding on something you thought was exciting or challenging an idea that you thought was concerning. And so I was like, well, I have a moral obligation because they've let this man get on this stage 
promote this idea that has been destructive and has been studied for decades as one of the worst ways we can address racial issues and policy. And it's in front of all these very influential, very powerful, and many of them wealthy people who will then go back and affect millions of people at their organizations and their positions of leadership by promoting this idea that's antiquated and the most probably the least innovative thing possible that they could have chosen on the stage. So my idea was colorblindness disrupts our ability to build healthy and trusting relationships because we understand in every other intimate relationship when we cause harm, we have to sit down, we have to acknowledge that harm, and then we have to reconcile it and change behavior. And your healthiest relationships, that is a process of rupture and repair. We understand that. We don't understand that when we put a racial lens on things. And so we have to understand that Having an accurate depiction of history, understanding why things are the way they are now, and course correcting is really the only way we're actually going to have a healthy, equitable, and just society. Seeing differences isn't the problem. We're always going to have differences. That's actually a strength of human experience and existence. If we didn't have diversity, we wouldn't survive. Evolution is based on diversity. Biodiversity is a thing. We have to have a diversity of creatures and plants and things on this planet for a two function. So pretending that things aren't different is silly and asinine, but that ways we treat differences is what matters. So I think when it comes to millennials and the myth-making and bringing it back to that is essentially how do we get generations to get out of this comfort zone of appearances and liking the attention that comes with attributing yourself to positive progressive ideas without following up with the behaviors? Because equity in and of itself is really about a power restructuring. And that's terrifying for some people. It's not about just the performative idea of I like you and I'm neutral to you and that's enough. No, it's we're going to change our social contracts. We're going to change our economic structures. We're going to change the ways that we relate to each other. And that is scary to people. Some people would prefer a society that's dysfunctional as it is right now because it feels comforting because they think if I lose my position of power, what does that mean? If someone else gains, if another group gains, what does that mean to me? And so I think these zero-sum myths and narratives that get passed on from grandparent to parent to child, which we've seen and is still happening, means that people are like, yeah, I don't burn crosses on lawns. I'm not showing up with a Ku Klux Klan hat. And that's also questionable because we're seeing people do that as well that are young. Um, So that's enough. You know, hate, stopping hate is the first basic minimal point of moving towards a progressive society. It's really, how do I change the ways that I relate to people? How do I become more culturally competent? in an educational system that does not require it? How do I become more nonviolent in the ways that I show up in the world? And nonviolence can mean the ways that you speak, the language that you use, the stereotypes that you perpetuate, the choices that you make that may mentally, physically, or emotionally harm somebody. I think all those things are a practice that our culture is just not good at in general because of the history that we have. You know, we have a white supremacist culture that has been built in a very specific way and designed a specific way. And it makes people uncomfortable to speak the truth. So I think that's a big part of it. And as a millennial myself, I do think what's interesting is the people who shape the next generation are the ones who are criticizing. Like y'all are the ones who are creating this. You're the parents, you're the teachers, you're the preachers. You're mad about what you've created. I mean, if you're the ones who are leading the next generation, because you literally birthed and raised them, who is responsible for whatever this new generation is doing. Obviously they have freedom of choice to some degree, right? But as uh, up until they're about 18, they're dependent on you. So where did it come from? That's what I think is interesting too. Boomers, et cetera, or older generations being so critical. I'm like, this was not y'all's doing. So why are you upset about the generation that you have shaped? It makes no damn sense. But I think there's a bigger 
identity reckoning, especially in the United States, that white Americans are going through because they're being confronted in very visceral ways with history that they've never had to be confronted with before. If you think about racial issues, for example, which is one of our biggest inflection points that we're going through, there's a huge polarization in people who are so angry that they're trying to ban books and they're trying to erase history and not talk about slavery and call it something else and all this other stuff. If you look at that, it's because we've never really been in a society where there's been an honest conversation about these issues. And now because of social media, because of the democratization of how we share ideas, that's the positive of it. People are being confronted in ways they never had to before while marginalized groups have had to live these things. So they have a PhD and racial issues. And a lot of white Americans are in kindergarten when it comes to Mm -hmm. these, these issues. And so they're showing up to these conversations, these political debates, these, you know, social media takes with such a distorted and cracked lens. So I think that's why it's really important for us to have these kind of conversations on podcasts or on a platform like TED. We cannot change our trajectory without looking at the incomplete stories that we believe. And there's a lot of incomplete stories about social progress why it happens, who it affects, and how being a progressive is not just about values, but about operationalizing them. Hmm. I think the only last question that I want to ask you is where can people find you? How can they work with you? Thank you. Well, I think they can definitely go to my website, thenewquo.com, which is T-H-E-N-E-W-Q-U-O.com. I have a podcast called Sway Them in Color, which is about unconventional leadership that's important to check out, especially if you want to diversify your narrative of what leadership and power and courage looks like. And I'm also on social media at Christina Blacken. My big thing is really examining this question of how does our relationships with ourselves and others radically evolve when we change the stories that we believe in our practices around self-worth and power and leadership. And I think these conversations about millennials or generations or these bigger social sort of pushes is all related to that. So anyone who's interested in more conversation about that, more work around that, definitely reach out to me and I'm happy to continue that conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having this amazing conversation and giving me um, a list of things that we now need to chase down as we continue to work on this this research. Um, Thank you, Christina, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the amazing questions. And I'm excited to see what the next generational narratives might be and how we'll expand them. And I'm hoping that these kinds of conversations can open up our lens and help us to tell a more accurate full story about the beautiful complexity and differences, as well as shared experiences that have shaped us. And yeah, I think that's the power of narrative is we do get to create shared narratives that feel more inclusive and resonant and that can motivate us towards a new future. So that's what I hope we end up creating. Yeah. Us too. That that that's a lot of what I think we're we're trying to. First, it's like unpick this <laughs> giant knot, and then try to kind of figure out something more constructive to make out of it. Um, and this has been really helpful in, in in helping us do that. So wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. On the next episode of In the Demo, Farah speaks with an expert who helps us understand how the attempt by marketers to flatten generational narratives breaks down community and impacts power structures. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostig and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license.
Go to InTheDemoPodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.